Life is full of interruptions, and sometimes those interruptions can change life dramatically. It was March the 2nd, 2002, I found myself driving on a wet, curvy, country Tennessee road. I had quarantined myself in a cute, quaint, A-frame cabin with my Bible, my computer, a couple of crates of commentaries, and the hopes that I would plan the next sermon series for the next half year. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I was hungry, so I decided to go and try to find a restaurant. The rain was steady, but it wasn't hard. I got into the car. I began to drive down that curvy country Tennessee road. There was a rock wall to my right and a large lake to my left. I tried to maneuver the curve, but began to hydroplane. I overcompensated in the hopes of getting back on the right side of the road, and at the last second, another car popped around the corner, and we hit in a head-on collision. If you've ever been in a wreck, you realize that time goes in slow motion. I can still see the airbag deploy. I can still almost feel my head go through the glass window on the driver's side. I literally saw stars. I felt blood trickle down the left side of my face. When everything came to a stop, I didn't know what to do next. I jumped out of the car. I didn't know what what was going to happen. I was by myself. I was in strange surroundings. I had just had a wreck, and I was on a country road in Tennessee for crying out loud. I got out of the car, and I heard in the distance a banjo playing deliverance. I mean, I was, I was a little unnerved. <laughs> to this day, I don't know the name of the middle-aged woman who came up with a wad of tissue paper in her hand. For all I know, she was an angel from heaven. She began to engage me in conversation, which I thought was a little odd. And then in retrospect, I realized she was just trying to keep me from passing out. She encouraged me to put the wad of tissue paper and press it against my head. She began to ask me about my family. At that time, uh, Jane Ellen was eight months pregnant with Molly Grace. She began to talk about, uh, tell me about your wife, tell me about your family, where do you live? And I became a blubbering mess. I began to cry. Uh, I I just want to go home and see my wife. I mean, she's expecting a baby. I'm just trying to find something to eat. I mean, oh no. And so I'm I'm just a blubbering mess. She tells me it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. A few moments later, the ambulance arrives. They take me to St. Mary Hospital. The doctors and nurses, they do a great job. A couple hours later, I am sitting up in a hospital bed. I'm staring at my blood-soaked sweater. I'm looking at my broken thumb that apparently got broken when the airbag deployed. I look into the mirror, and my head is wrapped like an Islamic terrorist. And (laughs) I sat there, and I thought to myself, I did not plan for this. I didn't schedule this. This is not what I wanted to do today. I had a lot of other things to do. I I had a lot of other things to study, other things to prepare. I did not plan for this. This is a huge interruption. Have you ever had a day like that? It's not going the way you want it to go. It's not on your calendar. It's not on your radar. It's not what you expect. Life is full of interruptions, and sometimes those interruptions can change life dramatically. I remember that at that time I was about 27, 28 years old. I actually thought I was invincible, and in that moment came the overwhelming reality about the brevity of life. Literally, life can be here today and gone in a moment. For me, that was an interruption. Yet that interruption, it 
changed my life dramatically. This morning, I want to tell you a story of an interruption. The story is found for us in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. It's an interruption in life that happened to this woman, and it changed her life dramatically. John chapter 8, we'll begin at verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 8, let's begin at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. By this time of his ministry, Jesus had caught the attention of all of Israel. People gathered both near and far to hear what the rabbi had to say. Everybody wanted to hear the great preacher from Galilee, except for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious establishment of the day. They were the church-going individuals. They thought Jesus was just a rebel-rousing rabbi from Galilee, and they really just wanted to silence him. In the previous chapter, John tells us it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus had gone to the temple, and there he was proclaiming the very word of God. The Pharisees thought it would be a great idea to dispatch some of the temple guards, have them arrest Jesus, and once and for all, silence him for all time. So the soldiers went. They heard Jesus preach. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. For anyone who believes in me, streams of living water will well up inside of him. Those temple guards began to look around and listen to the conversation that was going on. One person said, that man is a prophet. The other one said, oh no, he's not a prophet. He is the long-awaited Christ. He is the Messiah. Those soldiers went back empty-handed. The Pharisees said, where is Jesus? And they said, we couldn't arrest him. We've never heard anybody preach like that guy. The Pharisees rolled their eyes. They thought to themselves, if you're going to do a job, you're going to have to do it yourself. So they devised their own plan. The next day, they bullied their way through the crowd because once again, Jesus was teaching and he attracted a large crowd. They bullied their way to the front of the crowd and they had with them a scantily clad woman. They stood this woman in front of Jesus in the sight of all those who were in attendance. Now, how these guys got this woman is beyond me. At the very least, or at the very worst, these guys must be pharisaical peeping toms. 
I mean, they had to be uh, right there. Either they did it themselves or they did it vicariously, but somehow they sent some lynchmen so they could capture this woman in the act of adultery. They stood her up in front of Jesus, and she was overwhelmed with grief. Embarrassment was etched on her face. Her makeup, which was once perfectly placed, was now running down her cheeks in her tears. She was trying to hide herself. She was partially clothed, if clothed at all. Maybe she just had the bed sheet wrapped around her from which they had taken her moments earlier. Regardless, she's standing there. Her hair is draped in front of her face. She's trying not to make eye contact with anyone. She is the epitome of embarrassment. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses says, we ought to stone this woman. What do you say? Now, the truth of the matter is, in the law, it, it does say that. In a place like uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, or Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, it does say that such a person is to be stoned to death. And that may sound harsh to you, but the reason God put it there was to communicate the depth of his purity and the depth of his holiness and the sanctity of marriage. But if you look closely at that text in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, it clearly says that both the woman and the man are to be put to death. Where's the man in this scenario? Last time I checked, it takes two to tango. And I wondered to myself, I see the woman, but where is the man? Jesus can see right through the question. He knows that this is not an attempt for deep theological insight. This is an attempt to trap him and silence him. Jesus knows he's between a rock and a hard place. For if he denies the very law of Moses, he discredits himself as a holy rabbi. But yet if he affirms it, which was a practice that probably was not even made public in the first century. They probably stopped doing this a long time ago. But yet if he affirms it, then he loses his credibility with the crowd because he has always been known as a rabbi of reconciliation and restoration. So what is a savior to do in a moment like this? I'll tell you what this savior did. He doodled in the dirt. He knelt down and began to write something in the sand. They kept on hurling questions at him, and eventually he stood up and he said to the Pharisees, anyone without sin casts the first stone. I'll get out of the way. Go ahead, have at her. There's a good rock. You may want to pick that one up. Hey, that one has some jagged edges. You may want to get that one. Anyone without sin, go ahead. Cast a first stone. Oh, but before you do that, hold on a second. And he bent down for a second time and wrote something else in the sand. And one by one, those Pharisees dropped the rock. They walked away. Starting with the oldest, presumably the wisest, all the way down to the youngster. I have no idea what Jesus wrote. Let me tell you, nobody knows what Jesus wrote. That doesn't stop us from speculating, though, does it? I mean, everybody you ask, they have some scenario. They have some uh, suggestion of what Jesus might have wrote. Perhaps Jesus wrote down a scripture verse. Maybe he wrote Leviticus 20.10. Maybe he wrote Deuteronomy 22.22. Maybe he wrote, where is the man, question mark. Or maybe 
he did write write down their names. And maybe he began to itemize their sin for everybody to know. For they had tried to itemize her sin for everybody to know. And maybe Jesus just turning the tables and he's saying, wait a minute, um, let me identify you and itemize your sin. Regardless, whatever he wrote was convicting. It caused every man to drop that rock of condemnation. He walked away. Started with the oldest, because uh, you older fellows are a lot smarter than us younger guys. <laughs> because you know, if this is how it's going to go, I'm out of here. It takes us younger guys a little longer. And so the younger guys stuck around just a little while, but eventually they got the point too. And so all of them left. And for the first time, for the first time, Jesus addresses the woman. The first time in the story, he has not said a word to her. He's not, uh, maybe not even looked at her directly. But for the first time, he straightens up, locks eyes with her, and asks the question, where are your accusers? Do you have no one who's condemning you? And she said, with a bit of shock and a great deal of relief, no one, sir. There's no one to condemn me. Well, I... There's you. I don't know how this is going to go, but uh, you're the last one here. But, but no one, sir. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Now go. Leave your life of sin. There have been some people who have said of Jesus in this story that he was too soft on sin. I beg to differ. I don't think Jesus is being soft on sin. People have said, well, he, he doesn't. Condemn her, and clearly he could have. Clearly he should have. The Levitical law states that she should be condemned. And certainly Jesus could have condemned her, for the only one who could have hurled rocks at her refused to do so. To say that Jesus did not condemn her does not mean that he condoned her either. He told her, go and be transformed. Go and leave your life of sin. One of the, one of the great... Um, underrated verses of the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 17. Everybody knows his big brother, John 3, 16. It's so popular. Everybody knows it on billboards and posters. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3, 17, Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come for condemnation. Jesus came for salvation. For you and I are fully condemned all by ourselves. We don't need Jesus to show up to condemn us. If God wanted us to stay in our condemnation, All he had to do was not send Jesus. But Jesus came not to more fully condemn us because there's no way, because we're already fully condemned. But Jesus came to fully save us, to save us from our sins. I love how Franklin Graham answers the question, can a homosexual be a Christian? The answer, yes. But he or she cannot remain a homosexual. Can an adulterer be a Christian? Yes, but he or she cannot remain in adultery. Can a gossip be a Christian? Yes, but he or she cannot remain a gossip. Can a liar be a Christian? Yes, but he or she must not remain a liar. Can a pornographic pervert be a Christian? Yes, 
but that person must not remain in pornographic perversion. Can a sinner be a Christian? Yes, praise God. But that sinner must not remain in a lifestyle of sin. If Jesus teaches us anything from this story, he gives us two quick lessons. Let me itemize them for you quickly. Number one, Jesus tells us there is no sin too gross for grace. Look at the story. This woman's sin is gross. The arrogance of the Pharisees is gross. Your sin is gross. My sin is gross. There's no two ways about it. When we come face to face with our disobedience, we must come to the same conclusion that our sin is gross. The moment we try to excuse it, the moment we try to reconcile it, the moment we try to justify it, we don't fully understand the despicable nature of our sinfulness because the only conclusion you and I can accurately come to is that our sin is gross. Our disobedience is disgusting and all of us have to get to that same spot. But no sin is too gross for the grace of God. The second lesson is this, that the grace of God removes guilt and replaces it with gratitude. Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. The one who could have killed her, kept her. The one who could have stoned her, saved her. The one who could have condemned her, corrected her. This one who had every right to hurl rocks at her, hurled righteousness at her. Jesus had every right to condemn her, but he did not. He said, in place of that guilt, I will give you gratitude. Now, I don't know how the story ends. I mean, John really doesn't tell us. Jesus just gives a declaration, go now and leave your life of sin. What we hope and what we assume is that she leaves and she is completely transformed. No longer a homewrecker. No longer immoral. No longer uh, embracing another man for the comforts of life. Instead, she's now embracing her Savior and the love of God in her life. That's what we hope for. That's what we want. But we don't know, do we? It's almost as if John leaves it open-ended to invite you into the story. As if the Holy Spirit asks you, how does it end? How do you respond to the grace of God? Because the only appropriate response to the grace of God is gratitude. You and I cannot say we're recipients of the grace of God and then retreat into the shackles of our sin. There is no way that we can say we've received the gracious uh, benevolence and forgiveness of God only to retreat in that old lifestyle, in that old captivity. Oh no, we've been set free both now and forevermore. And the only response we can say is thank you, Jesus. We are filled with gratitude because of the grace of God that's been poured out upon our life. So it's almost as if the Spirit of God invites you into this story for you to finish it. Because what Jesus wants us to know is that there's no sin that's too gross for grace. And also he wants us to know that the grace of God, it not only removes guilt, but it replaces it with gratitude. It's been said that... Biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity, that we look into the pages of Scripture and we see people who look just like us. And this morning I wonder, which person do you look like in this story? 
I realize that at different stages of life, you can look like different people in this story. Maybe today, you look like that woman who is etched in embarrassment. You, you feel as if your story is wide open for everybody to read. And Jesus says unto you, my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already got your rock in hand. You think to yourself, I'm a church person, I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, I'm upright, I'm pure. And how dare someone do this or do that? And you've already got the stone in hand ready to hurl the rock. And Jesus reminds us, we have no right. We have no right. He was without sin, cast the first stone. You know, when I come to this Lord's table, I gather around his table, and, and I need you to know, the Lord is the host of the table. He is the maitre d'. He is the one in charge. He is the one calling the shots. He's the one who's going to preach from this table. And when I look at this table, I realize that, that in these elements of bread and cup, Jesus is reminding us of the grossness of our sin. Even if we've been forgiven for decades and we, we walk in that victory, we come to this table and we are reminded of the grossness of our disobedience because it's because of our sin that the Savior came. It's because of our sin that Jesus' precious body was broken and his blood was spilt. And so we come to this table and we're reminded of our sin. We take the bread and we take the cup and we feast on Christ by faith. But I also need to tell you, we don't come to a memorial service. We don't come to a funeral of a dead man. This is not just merely a memorial service. We come to this table, and yes, we're reminded of the grossness of our sin, but we're also reminded of the gratitude which God has given us in Christ because we worship a God who's very much alive and very much active. For on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Yes, we take the bread, and yes, we take the cup, but we serve a living Lord. So on this day, you just might be reminded of the grossness of your sin, but also on this day, please be reminded of the depth of gratitude that you have to God. And you celebrate. Because the hymn writer is exactly right. There is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Oh, beloved, if you're here this morning and you are an adopted child of God, you are bought with a price. Your life is covered by the blood of Jesus. If you're a baptized believer in the Lord, Jesus invites you to his table. So this morning, let's come and commune with Christ.